Prospect Lives. Southern Voices on Modern Britain. Welcome the stranger and you welcome God. I jest that the farmer doesn't need to go to the bookies. Everyday life is a gamble. My enthusiasm has occasionally taken a physical toll on my body. Yesterday, I had an encounter with my younger self. Welcome to Prospect Lives, a chronicle of disparate experiences of modern Britain by a family of regular prospect writers filling us in on what they're thinking about each month. We left our seven writers in October. Anglican priest Alice Goodman told us about the workings of Operation London Bridge in her parish, while former England cricket captain Mike Brealey was reminded of the joys of teamwork by a Freddie Flintoff documentary. This month, Farmer Tom gives some unusual investment advice, while Serena Smith explains the vaping phenomenon amongst Britain's young people. But let's begin with Sheila, who has an encounter with her younger self in the BBC archives. Yesterday, I had an encounter with my younger self. I was shown communications found in the BBC written archives that I had with the corporation when I was bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. The first letter that I was shown was one I had sent to a casting director, a polite, neatly worded request for an audition written in 1949 when I was 16 and had just started at drama school. The address I give is the YWCA hostel where I was living and starts, Dear Sir... The likelihood of a woman being an authority didn't even occur to me in those days, and is signed yours faithfully. Presumably that and maybe other well-mannered approaches failed, because in 1952 I sent another letter to the BBC showing some frustration. It starts, I am a 19-year-old struggling actress who knows no one with influence. It explains, I have worked in Oldham, West Kirby and Bertram Mill Circus, which I can't think would have impressed him greatly. There were two repertory companies in Oldham. One was excellent, and doubtless I hope that he thought I meant that one. Mine was Next Door, a twice-nightly flea pit presenting plays like Reefer Girl and Mars Bitter Brass. Bernard Cribbins was an actor and assistant stage manager at the posh one. We made friends and would sit by the stage door dustbins dreaming of stardom. My letter ends, please, please, just see me, or dare I say it, give me an audition. Somebody must have taken pity on me, for the next document I was shown was a report on my audition in 1953. It made me very angry on behalf of the young me. It said of my diction that I was perhaps a little over-careful and of my tone, whatever that is, it condescends she could pass for educated. I should bloody well hope so. After two agonising years at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art getting rid of my much-mocked Cockney accent... The adjudicator for the audition gave me an A for acting, but summed up regretfully that this actress might be useful for character juveniles. 
heaven forfend that a girl from this background should play leads. Nothing daunted, in 1954, there I am again, trying to get another audition from a new casting director with another letter. I may say this audition has become a positive obsession with me and you will get no peace until I do it. I only want an opportunity to show what I can do, even if you hate me. It's not surprising that I didn't hear from the BBC for several years after this deranged outburst. After that, I did an endless round of depressing repertory theatre, rehearsing a new play every week while playing another at night, as well as third-rate tours all over the country. In those harsh years, I learnt to value the affection of audiences, but I just did not fit in with those at the top of the hierarchy. I was too tall, not pretty, and working class. Thank God all that changed when the wonderful woman called Joan Littlewood came to Stratford East and along with the Royal Court Theatre and television broadcasters started to do plays about ordinary people. There, at last, in the BBC archives, is my contract from 1961 for a television show called Rag Trade. Ten years of struggling to be beautiful and upper class were abandoned when I played a gawky Cockney girl. It was a huge success. Why did some archivists see fit to save these letters? Were they, like me, moved by the sheer guts and determination of this girl, behaving in an unseemly way for the period when women were supposed to know their place? Now I ask myself... Do I still have the same resilience to fight the setbacks of old age? A series that I loved working on has recently been cancelled. Probably yes. Probably because at my age it's not deemed a long-term investment. The parts I am offered now invariably die or go senile. I'm running out of new interpretations of both. It's a full-time job to keep functioning, let alone performing, involving the gym, hearing aids, pills, injections, crosswords, physio and willpower. The BBC obviously did not communicate with the young Sheila after the audition in 1953. Later, she writes boldly, complaining that you haven't even acknowledged my being there. This lack of recognition of her existence was obviously what hurt. She feared that she had failed. She feared that she had failed a rare opportunity. She wanted another chance. I do beg of you to allow this as I should I do beg of you to allow this as I should hate to be inscribed as hopeless till the end of time on the sacred BBC files. Well, young Sheila, both the sacred BBC and the old Sheila are having a bit of a struggle to exist. But never fear, 
they are not without hope. Emma John shares Sheila's determination to succeed in her fledgling amateur cricket career. You'll have to forgive me if I drop a few of my P's and Q's. I've broken the ring finger of my right hand and as a result, a whole section of my keyboard has become inaccessible territory. My little finger has to pick up the slack for the redundant fourth finger that's just hopping about in space housed in its protective waxy splint sheath. It's trying to look useful but is only getting in the way, which is rather apt because that is exactly how I felt running around on the field where I got the injury. I'm a newcomer to athletic pursuit. Even off the pitch, I've always been a clumsy person who bumps into things for the sole reason that I don't really know where my limbs begin or end. It was no surprise to me, or anyone who knows me, that my nascent cricketing career has been accompanied by bruises, strains and blackened nails. My previous sporting experiences were different. Armchair warriors like me rarely bear visible scars of our pursuits, because the greatest physical danger we do to ourselves is internal. I'll never know how many years I've taken off my life through habitual sofa snacking, drinking beers at the game and the toxic levels of stress that I put my heart through on a weekly basis. My enthusiasm has occasionally taken a physical toll on my body. I was at the Olympic Stadium in 2012 on the evening that Mo Farah, Jess Ennis and Greg Rutherford all won gold medals, and lost my voice for 24 hours afterwards. Super Saturday was succeeded by Silent Sunday. I also scored heat stroke from an especially intense day watching dressage. But I've never suffered anything as dramatic as a broken bone. That might be why the incident has already been memorialised in my mind, not as one of failure, but of true heroism. Yes, I hurt myself in practice attempting to catch a ball, and yes, a more competent athlete would have easily taken it, and a more self-aware one would have kept her hand out of the way. But, and here is my proudest boast, I still played in the game the next day, and, during a reckless and ungainly attempt to stop a ball speeding to the boundary, hurt the same finger again. Being someone who spends very little time caring for, let alone listening to, her body, eight days passed before I thought to present myself at a hospital. When I eventually did, an x-ray showed that I had broken the bone not once, but twice, in different places. The splint has been with me for a couple of months. When I'm not resenting its inconvenience, I show it off as a badge of honour. After all... There is nothing I appreciate more as a fan of sport than the athlete who plays on through pain. Some of my all-time favourite stories are of moments I never saw. Bert Troutman seeing out the 1956 FA Cup final with a broken neck. Colin Cowdery walking out to the crease with his arm in a plaster cast to face a fearsome West Indies attack. I did watch 400-metre runner Derek Redmond limp to the finish line at the 1992 Olympics, sobbing on the shoulder of his father. And I still get a thrill from seeing the famous picture of Terry Butcher after England's 1989 qualifier against Sweden, covered in blood from shirt to shorts like the final survivor of a teen slasher movie. I doubt I'll ever feel closer to those sporting idols than I do right now. I was disappointed to miss the final month of the cricket season, unable to pitch in with the team on the field, but I've joined an even bigger club, that of the frustrated, injured athlete. 
And while my broken finger has proven deeply annoying, not least for the friends who have had to help me wash my hair, it has also achieved the one thing that my physical efforts could not. It's made me feel like a real athlete. For Jason Thomas Vanillier, the government's ban on the right to work for asylum seekers is a constant frustration. I am not free while any man or woman is unfree. Give every other human being every right you claim for yourself. This is my doctrine. I know very well from personal experience, as a person seeking asylum here in the UK, how difficult life can be when you do not have the right to work. Asylum seekers facing uneasing stress, deprivation and depression because of the limits imposed on when we can go out to earn a wage. Volunteering has been a saving grace for me. I want to feel busy and useful and I do around 45 hours of volunteer work a week. I've done a lot of training and I've been learning new skills in the non-profit sector. I have built a strong CV. If I was ever given the opportunity to do a demanding paid role, I would be fully equipped to handle it. The right to work has always been important to me and my fellow asylum seekers, but today it is critically so. Despite the cost of living, we still only receive £5.84 per day to live on. Lifting the ban on work for asylum seekers would also support the UK economy. It is perverse not to allow us to fill vacancies when the country is facing a labour shortage. This is especially important given the increasing number of people waiting a long time for a decision. Sadly, not everyone who applies for asylum in the UK will be granted it. But while they are waiting for the decision, people deserve to live in dignity. The UK government's quarterly immigration statistics reveal that in the last 12 months to June 2022, 89,231 people had been waiting for more than six months. This record is approximately a 65% increase on the previous year and more than 10 times higher than the number 10 years ago. That means that more than two-thirds of all decisions on an initial claim now take longer than six months. While waiting for a decision, which means they are usually unable to work, asylum seekers are vulnerable to exploitation. During a focus group, that I helped to organise with other people seeking asylum, one member ventured, I would say that the hostile environment is one of the greatest causes of vulnerability to exploitation within the UK. Every aspect of it creates vulnerability. Like the financial measures, the fact that people can't work Surely that's one of the single greatest factors that will cause people to fall for human traffickers. They must circle around that as a vulnerability to be exploited. This is corroborated by a joint report published by the British Red Cross and the UN Refugee Agency, which found 
that asylum seekers in the UK were at risk of being recruited into domestic servitude and modern slavery. Research I took part in also suggested lifting the ban on working would save more than 200 million per year as labour shortages continue to be a cause of anxiety and many industries. For many industries. The Migration Observatory recently published a report about the impact of the end of the EU free movement on labour shortages. This follows a report by the CBI on how labour shortages are holding back growth. Given the right to work, asylum seekers could help to fill these gaps like the Ukrainian refugees who I spoke to. Their sponsorship scheme allows them to work and they are helping to alleviate the staffing crisis in different businesses in the Northeast. The current UK government, regardless of leader, seems to feel they can make decisions on behalf of people they do not know, can't see and think of entirely in dehumanised terms. The results are devastating for people seeking asylum who, like me, are ready and willing to work when given the chance. While parish life can be supportive and communal, Alice Goodman warns that the parochial can also be exclusionary. Parochial, meaning of the parish. Parochial, meaning also narrow in scope or outlook. Don't get me wrong, I love my parishes, the four villages, each smaller than the last, Fullborn, then Great and Little Wilbraham, and finally Six Mile Bottom, a hamlet of fewer than a hundred souls. I love the parish system, the principle that wherever you are in England, you are in an ecclesiastical parish, with, somewhere or other, a parish priest who owes you something, attention, prayer, the rights of the church, should you desire them. I love the principle that the holy can be found here where we are. You don't have to go on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem or Rome, or even to the next town. God is here, where you live. Your children dress as shepherds and angels at Christmas, and a local baby is the centre of the tableau. When the parish goes wrong, though, it becomes parochial in the other sense. There's no room at the inn. It becomes a hostile environment. I drove out of my patch recently to attend the ordination of one of the students sent here for two years to learn about village ministry. The service was held at a parish church near Chelmsford. We had been sent tickets and advised to arrive early, which I did. The nave had a clear view to the chancel, the bishop's chair, and the places where the five ordinance would kneel. In addition, separated by a series of big fat columns and a pulpit, there was seating in the north aisle, with a clear view of the door to the hall and the toilets. Naturally, I wanted to sit in the nave. Well, every pew was filled with parishioners, or, if not filled, reserved for friends who would be coming later. I walked from pew to pew asking if there was room for me. There was not. 
It felt just like eating lunch as an unpopular kid in high school. I was determined to see, though, so I took a chair at the back by the font. We'll have to ask you to move, said one of the sidesmen. I sat there seething. Then a group of people came in, beautifully dressed, carrying flowers and a gift, and I thought, this must be for Malayo's family. So I followed them to the front of the North Isle and asked whether I could join them. They welcomed me. That was when I noticed that the people who looked like they might be for Malayo's guests were seated in the North Isle. How did I know? How do you think I knew? Because they were all black. How did this happen? Maybe because they'd come from other London suburbs and the good seats got snapped up first by the locals. That must have been part of it. But I learned later that those who arrived earlier even than I had were shown to the North Isle and asked to sit there. Yes, that's right. Unless my eyes deceived me, it was white people in the nave, black people in the North Isle. I don't believe this was intended by the good people of the parish, but it looked terrible. It looked at best like a classic case of unconscious bias. It looked like parochialism in the worst sense of the word. And it meant that the people who'd come to see Fumalaya ordained got to hear the service and receive communion, but missed the moments when the bishop laid his hands on her head and anointed the palms of her hands for the work of a priest. Afterwards I spoke and later wrote to the archdeacon about all this, and he said he would look into it as a matter of urgency. While I wait to hear back, I'm reflecting on the parochial. If a church is lucky enough to have a choir, they can expect their dedication feast to include the Latin gradual Locus Iste, ideally in Bruckner's setting. The words are taken from the story of Jacob's dream. Out in the desert, between one place and another, he lies down to sleep with a stone for a pillow. In his dream, he sees a ladder stretched between heaven and earth, with angels ascending and descending upon it. He wakes and exclaims, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. That's Genesis 28.16. On the day when a parish church celebrates the essence of its local particularity, which is what a dedication festival is, a voice rises to remind everyone with ears to hear that its holiness is in the eyes of the visitor from elsewhere. Welcome the stranger, and you welcome God. As Tom Martin drills seeds in the ground, he muses on what the world will look like when he harvests the crops next August. We're drilling on the farm, but not for oil, water or gas. Drilling is the term we use for planting our crops, and we typically do that in the autumn. It's a crucial part of the year as we rush to get the crops planted between rain showers. We do it after the summer weeds have germinated, but before the soil gets too wet. A farmer has to be an optimist or he wouldn't still be a farmer, said the American humorist Will Rogers. And this is an optimistic time of year. We're buying seed, turning our money into grain before passing it over to the stewardship of the earth and the weather. All we can do is hope that the soil will multiply our investment. 
In a good year, 200 kilograms of seed sown in a hectare, which is 10,000 square metres, will become 10 tonnes of grain. In a poor year, it will become less than five, and the additional costs incurred mean that we'll make a loss we can barely afford. Over the next 10 months, we'll spread a little fertiliser, add nitrogen-fixing bacteria, and attempt to deal with the weeds. We'll observe and tend the crop through the cold and dark of winter, through the lengthening and warming days of spring when we'll pray for rain, and into the summer. We don't know what the future holds, but we're hopeful that by next August, in a little under 300 days, we'll be harvesting a bumper crop. We are optimists. As I look beyond the farm gate at tumultuous markets and the revolving door of number 10, I wonder what will happen in the country in those 300 days. While I'm in the field checking sheep through the bite of winter, will our elderly and vulnerable be able to heat their homes? As the wheat, barley and beans root and grow, will our businesses and the wider UK economy wither and die? And when I sit down for supper in the security of the farmhouse, will the good people of Ukraine taste the same freedom and security that I enjoy? As well as being optimists, farmers are also gamblers. Our profit relies on the weather, which is increasingly extreme, and world grain and fertiliser markets that swing wildly from day to day. I jest that the farmer doesn't need to go to the bookies. Everyday life is a gamble. With gilts and bonds, currencies and pension funds and stocks and shares lurching from bull to bear, who knows where the wise investment is? A 2015 survey found that 43% of Americans keep their savings in cash, with over half of them choosing to hide bills in a secret location at home. While that doesn't seem like wise investment advice, it does kind of mirror the annual farming strategy. In this volatile climate, digging a hole and burying your money in the ground each autumn might just pay dividends. For Gen Zia Serena Smith, a banana-flavoured vape is a real treat. From pubs to bars to bus stops, vapes are everywhere. Sometimes it feels like you can barely walk five metres without striding into a blueberry-scented cloud of second-hand smoke. Sales of these electronic cigarettes are rapidly increasing. In the last quarter of 2021, the major online retailer Indiejuice saw a 279% rise in sales of disposable vapes, with Elf and Geek Bars the most popular brands. This dramatic surge in popularity can largely be explained by a change in attitude towards vaping by young people. Put simply, vapes have gone from cringe to cool. The Elf Bar brand has been particularly influential in giving vaping a makeover. On TikTok, a platform dominated by Gen Z users, the hashtag Elf Bar currently has over 1 billion views. Two years ago, I might have teased a friend for whipping out a clunky vape at the pub, but now, I wouldn't bat an eyelid at anyone sucking a sleek elf bar. Elf bars are the very definition of cheap and cheerful. They cost around £4, are available from most supermarkets, and come in a range of fun flavours and colours, like cotton candy, watermelon or blue raspberry. There's no need to faff around with one. You just take it out of the packaging and start puffing. When it runs out, you chuck it in the bin. It's not exactly eco-friendly. But can vapes replace cigarettes as a symbol of chic? Cigarettes, unfortunately for public health, will probably always be cool, thanks to the likes of James Dean and Marilyn Monroe making smoking appear impossibly glamorous back in the 1950s. But tobacco use is falling in the UK, from 19.8% in 2011 to 14.1% in 2019. 
I'll admit, sucking a hot pink vape pen will never be the same as lighting up a cigarette. But when the research so far suggests that vaping is around 95% less harmful than smoking cigarettes, it's surely good that this safer alternative is quickly becoming more socially acceptable. Naturally, as is the case with virtually any trend or fad among under-25s, the bit there's... Naturally, as is the case with virtually any trend or fad among under-25s, there's been an accompanying moral panic about vaping. Could they act as a gateway to cigarettes? Surely breathing in cherry-scented fumes all day can't be good for anyone. Well, maybe. It's true that elf bars are highly addictive and contain around 48 cigarettes worth of nicotine. And worryingly, it's still not clear what the long-term effects of vaping may be. Experts have urged young people not to buy vapes unless it's a way to wean themselves off cigarettes. But it does seem to be an effective tool in helping people avoid more harmful cigarettes. Nearly two-thirds of vapors are ex-smokers, and according to research from UCL, electronic vapes may have helped 18,000 people in England quit smoking. As youth trends go, vaping is on the tamer side. Generations before ours often turned to smoking cigarettes as a way of rebelling. So who's to begrudge us the small pleasure of toking on a banana-flavoured vape? It might be a lot better for your health, or it might only be a little, but life's too short not to treat yourself now and then. Thank you so much for tuning in to our Prospect Lives podcast. Listen out to hear more from our family of writers in November, and tune in to our regular podcast, The Prospect Podcast, every Wednesday. If you've enjoyed hearing from our wonderful Lives colourists, escape the echo chamber and grab a copy of Prospect from the newsstand on sale now. Or go to our website where you can read writing from Ferdinand Mount, Julian Glover, Louise Tickle and many more. Goodbye and see you next time.